In some sense, those kinds of hymns, which we draw directly from the words of Scripture, are very, very difficult to sing. I do want to invite you, if you have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Zephaniah. Zephaniah, we are in a brief series in Zephaniah to connect really two other series. We walked our way through 1 Thessalonians together, and we will go to 2 Thessalonians. And in between, we, we thought it fitting to go to Zephaniah because Zephaniah deals most explicitly, really, and very briefly with the day of the Lord. That is the day about which we just have sung. The day when Christ will return, and, and in the, the most vivid words of Scripture, it will be so terrible for those who do not believe that he will be soaked. It says his robe, Revelation, his robe will be soaked in the blood of his enemies. We don't want to take this day lightly, but it's this day that Zephaniah prophesied about. It's also this day that, that Paul, when he wrote 1 Thessalonians, concludes by talking about that day of the Lord, that terrible day of the Lord, and then begins his second letter talking about the day of the Lord. So we're going to spend these few weeks. This is now the third sermon in the series. We're going to be in chapter 2, Zephaniah chapter 2, and we're going to break this into two parts. We've got a lot going on today, and I want to, I want to uh, hopefully cover some, some initial things today, Get through a couple of a couple of major points, and then next week we'll wrap it up with the other three points. One thing you should know about this section of Zephaniah is that it makes use of many literary devices to paint a gruesome picture of God's judgment. And this judgment came in the days of uh, ba the Babylonian captivity. You know, Zephaniah came just before uh, Jeremiah. Zephaniah being a minor prophet because he didn't have a whole lot of content. Jeremiah being a major prophet because he gave us, you know, 52 chapters. So uh, we read Zephaniah with, uh, with the knowledge that there was a, a, a hint of this judgment that they saw in the Babylonian captivity. Everything was destroyed. They were taken from their land, the people of Judah taken from their land. And it was just as God prophesied. Yet there is a distant fulfillment in Zephaniah and Jeremiah in that day that Christ returns to bring this judgment worldwide. Now we often talk about a renewed creation being made new in Christ and those things are true. There will be a new heaven and a new earth renewed because of him. But you know it's going to be so bad that you would think that you, you don't know how the, the first earth is going to survive. It's going to be so bad that you don't know how anything is going to get through. But by God's grace, there is a remnant. And just as there is a remnant of people, there is a remnant of creation 
where God recreates all things. So the events in Judah in these days, and the words of Zephaniah declare the urgency, the urgency of turning to God for salvation through Jesus Christ, who will be revealed, as Second Thessalonians says, with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel. It was a delight to hear you all mention the names of people that you know need Jesus and that we could lift them up today. It encouraged me far more than I realized it would. Honestly, I was like, what could we do to fill in time while I'm changing clothes? And now I've been blessed. So thank you, Raul. The theme this morning and next week even with the great and terrible day of the Lord looming, God welcomes the repentant by grace. Even with the great and terrible day of the Lord looming, God welcomes the repentant by his grace. And we're going to look at this in, in sort of two ways. We have one point that, that speaks to the way of deliverance, the one way of deliverance. And then we're going to turn to his judgment of the nations and speak about uh, four ways that judgment will come, four ways of lasting judgment. And if we could kind of capture those two in the idea that Jesus, when he spoke about the broad road and the narrow road, there is that narrow road wherein people find salvation, find eternal life, and there are few who find it. There are few who find the one way of salvation. Yet there is a broad road, he says, that leads to eternal destruction. So the ways that we see unpacked in this chapter show us how all these nations had their own chosen way to reject God. They all did different things to uh, show their rebellion against God. They all did different things to the people of God. There are many, many ways where you can secure yourself a place in hell. But there is one way. There is one way of salvation, and that is through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. So, let's go with this one way of deliverance. It's in verses 1 through 3. We're going to read as we go in this set of sermons. We'll read and then preach the point, read and then preach the point, okay? Zephaniah 2, I want you to follow along with me, hear the word of the Lord. Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord, for Gaza shall be deserted, Ashkelon shall become a desolation, Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. 
And so you see the turn from the people that he is welcoming in and then the nations. Verses 1 through 3 show us, first off, that one way is a way of welcome. It's a way of welcome. God extends his welcome to the people who will listen. Those, as he says, who are humble in the land, who are willing to do his command. Now, God's people here in verse 1, the people of Judah are described as shameless. Shameless people. This description, it helps us understand just how calloused and godless these people had become in their idolatrous mixture of God's worship. We understand this. We understand this. We, 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 we see, as their history points, they take the worship of this God. And as he mentioned in chapter 1, Milcom. They take the worship of false gods, and it finds its way into the worship of the one true God, thus diminishing, really destroying any attempt to worship God. Now, there are numerous applications that we can make as the people of God in our society here and now. Look, we look around and we see churches that look just like the world. And we can't be that people. We can't be this shameless people. Jeremiah would come along soon after Zephaniah speaking for God. Here's what he says, Jeremiah 6.15. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No. No. They were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. You know, we use a lot, I use a lot of illustrations that talk about our children. And and honestly, we see so much of ourselves in the way that children act. You know, there's there's a couple of different ways that children rebel. You know, there's that child that has so committed themselves to the rebellion that they do it, no matter who's around, no matter who's watching, they disregard, you call their name, and it's like, no, I'm doing this. Nobody can stop me. But then there's that kind of rebellion that recognizes what it's doing. So it rebels, but it's like, all right, who's watching me? It rebels, but it's like, can my dad see me right now? I know I'm doing something wrong. Is, is there somebody that can can see this happening right now. Do you see the difference? There is one who is shameless. And then there is one that recognizes, hey, this is shameful. Somebody is watching me. We all know what it's like to feel shame, to be ashamed of our actions, yet as we become comfortable with the things that God calls sin, we strip away the notion in our minds that we are living our lives before the eyes of God. This is what the reformers called Coram Deo. Coram Deo. That literally means living before the face of God. Martin Luther, a reformer, frequently connected human conscience to Coram Deo. R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul, 
explains. He says, to live in the presence of God is to understand that whatever we are doing and wherever we are doing it, we are acting under the gaze of God. So your sin last night, your sin last week, has a bit of a different flavor when you consider it taking place before the face of God. In the New Testament, Paul writes about what happens when we neglect or ignore God's presence. He says to Timothy, he says, conscience becomes seared. We sear our consciences. So when we rightly feel shame, and I say that rightly because there's a way that the enemy weaponizes feelings of shame. I don't want to consider that right now. It's not what we're talking about. When we rightly feel shame before God and before fellow believers, that is evidence of God's grace toward us. These folks were shameless. It seems as though there was no hope for them. And when we sear our own conscience by harboring sin, by giving up the fight for practical holiness, by surrendering to the ways of the flesh, the ways of the world, by, as a writer of Hebrews says, trampling underfoot the Son of God, we endanger our own souls and invite the judgment of God. And so the writer of Hebrews says, how can we go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth? I know Raul's here. You know, in the worst case, that kind of shameless rebellion only reveals that our so-called faith was a sham all along. And in the best case, what it means is the purifying fire of God will be all the more painful of a process. While we invite God's judgment, he welcomes us through repentance. He welcomes us through repentance. So let shame, let your shame bring you to repentance. This is not something that can be delayed as we've already emphasized in this this book. Zephaniah comes with urgency. Not a lot of explanation, just here's what's happening. Repent and believe. But he says right here, before the decree takes effect. Do you know when that will happen? You don't know what tomorrow holds. You don't know what a day may bring forth. Do you know when that decree will happen? He says, before the day passes like chaff, do you know when your last day is? Do you know when the last day is? Thank you. Read my mind. The truth is that many, hear me, many 
will watch as their final opportunity for salvation is swept away like chaff in the wind. He says, before the day of God's burning anger, seek the Lord. Verse 3 unpacks what seeking the Lord looks like. Three times he tells us to seek. Seeking here, according to Barker and Bailey, is almost a technical term that means to worship and obey the Lord. So don't get seeking confused with seeking in our culture because usually seeking in our culture means, well, yeah, I'm sort of a spiritual person, but uh, actually it means I'm just going to do what I want until I want to get serious about the things that concern eternity or God or morality or existence. That's what that means. That's not what that means in this text. It's not like, oh, I need to start that journey of seeking. No. You know how you seek God? You worship him and you obey him. This is the prescription. He gives that response. This is what he calls us to. And the people listening to this knew full well what it meant. And so seeking the Lord, he breaks it down really into two commands. Seek righteousness and seek humility. So first, seek righteousness. He says only those willing to walk in God's ways who do his just commands, only those will actually be seekers of God. You can't walk the way of the world and pretend to worship God in a way that is acceptable. He turns this into a command here, seek righteousness. And sometimes we have a one-sided view of righteous living. A partial righteousness, so to speak. You remember the rich young man in Mark 10 who came to Jesus wanting the assurance of eternal life. And he he testified to keeping a bunch of commands since his youth. And what were they? Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He says, yeah, I've done all that since, since the days of my youth. You notice that all of these are horizontal commands. That is, they're commands that relate to our relationship with others. And so he's willing to say, yeah, I've done all this. Yet when Jesus challenged his vertical relationship with God, he proved to worship his possessions rather than God. He had a a partial understanding of righteousness. But you know, it happens the other way too. Sometimes in an effort to cultivate piety, to live the disciplined Christian life, others neglect the horizontal commands in favor of the vertical commands and thus deceive themselves just the same. Yeah, you know your Bible. Yeah, you pray a lot. And that seems to be the problem in Judah. Hey, we're doing all the things, right? We're doing all the religious things, and God should be happy with us. Yet, yet they defraud one another, and they oppress 
one another. They neglect the horizontal commands. There was an air of godliness while they neglected God's righteous standard for relating to one another. So Octemeyer comments, he says, generally, the righteous man in Israel was the man who preserved the peace and wholeness of the community because he, it was he who fulfilled the demands of communal living. How we relate to one another, very simply, how we relate to one another is based on how we relate to God. The two can never be divorced. So seek righteousness, he says, but also, he says, seek humility. Seek humility. Someone who seeks the Lord begins by recognizing their dependence on God. You can't live high on pride with no shame over your sin and be a worshiper of the one true God. So he specifies, those willing to humbly admit dependence on God, only those will actually be seekers of God. And this too turns into that command, seek humility. The humble are conscious of God's divine presence. They wait on God. They're guided by him. They're dependent on him in everything. But they're a minority in Judah in these days. And I think they're a minority among the saints, those professing believers. I want to be careful. I think they're a minority among the professing believers in our land. They heed the words of Zephaniah when many turn away. They realize that their righteousness, no matter how hard they try, is always going to fall short. And while they seek righteousness, they look to the Lord who is their righteousness. And then we start to see where righteous living truly comes from. If you try to justify yourself based on your own deeds, you will not be counted among the humble. Your righteousness, as God's word says, is filthy rags. Your works only further your condemnation. You can't love the Lord sufficiently. You can't worship the Lord wholeheartedly. You can't follow his ways perfectly without the righteousness of Jesus imputed to you, credited to you. It's these people that are the humble people in the land. It's these people that seek humility. So he says, seek the Lord. John Gill points out here, that in the, in the Latin translation of this verse, it says, seek the Lord, seek the just, seek the meek one. And that's so helpful for us right now. And so Gil counsels on those words. He says, seek Jesus, 
the Holy One, the meek and lowly Jesus, our righteousness. Seek righteousness, seek humility. God extends this welcome to all who would humbly seek him for the righteousness only he supplies. He only supplies it one way. In his son, Jesus. So, would you seek him today? God welcomes you to faith in Jesus that you may, as he says, you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Here also from Isaiah. It's on the screen. Isaiah 32, 1 and 2. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. You know, we sing a song, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me what? Hide. Hide myself in thee. Seek the Lord. This is the only way. And then we turn in these next verses, beginning with verse 4. We turn to four ways of lasting judgment. Again, we're only going to cover the first one. Four ways of lasting judgment. The first of which is woe. Woe. Verses 4 through 7. For Gaza shall be deserted. Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to you inhabitants of the seacoast, you nations of the Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. And you, O seacoast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze. And in the houses of Ashkelon, they shall lie down at evening, for the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. So these verses, these verses, they set off a series of verses aimed at all the nations of the earth. Now follow me here. This kind of helps us lay a foundation for next week. Those of you who will return. And by the way, any of you guests are welcome to return. It may not seem like there's any rhyme or reason to the list of nations. And many of you have no idea where Gaza and Ashkelon are. But let me help you just a little bit here. Zephaniah has a definite purpose for grouping the nations the way he does. He speaks of the nations that surround Judah, as as one commentator says, from all the four points of the compass. So, Philistia to the west, Moab and Ammon to the east, Cush and Assyria to the south and the north. So not only... Was judgment going to fall on Judah because they were wayward against God? Judgment was going to also 
fall on the enemies of God's people. The enemies, we could say it this way, from the four corners of the earth. Now, hope you see the contrast. Judgment will fall on the four corners of the earth. There is no escaping the wrath of God. It will come upon all people everywhere in the end. Yet what does Jesus say also happens in the four corners of the earth? He will gather his elect. He will gather his elect from the four winds, from the four corners. God's salvation in Jesus Christ will reach in every direction from one end of heaven, Matthew 24 says, to the other. So where there is wrath, know that God's grace is there as well. For those who refuse to repent and trust God's chosen servant, the righteous king, Jesus, God pronounces woe to you. He mentions four of five major Philistine cities moving from south to the north. His words are scathing, but they are precise like a scalpel. And in poetic fashion, he uses similar sounds to pronounce woes, sounds I'm not going to try to emulate for you this morning. You get the idea, though. Deserted, desolate, driven out, displaced. There's four Ds for you. Deserted, desolate, driven out, displaced. This is what becomes of those who oppose God and his people. And so in verse 5, he says, woe. Woe comes to those in Philistia and those associated with it. The mention of Canaan only increases the effect of their curse. No inhabitant is left. And verse 6 paints a picture of the land as being more fit for shepherds and sheep than for a developed civilization. Verse 7 points to a new possession of the land. Regarding the people of God, the remnant, he says, will graze and rest in the evening. The remnant will graze upon this land and they'll lie down and rest. The true people of God will be restored and they will share the inheritance of the nations that is destined for Jesus Christ. You know the passage and you know the song. Ask and I'll give the nations to you. That's for Jesus, actually. But as we are found in him, as we are co-heirs with him, we will inherit all things with him. I want to conclude this morning by going to verse 6 and giving you just briefly that picture once more. Verse 6. And you, O seacoast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. Alec Motyer writes, the picture of pastoral peace is probably an intentional contrast with the warlike reputation of the Philistine states. 
So I want you to get this picture, people. The future, for those who believe, is characterized by the perfect care of God. The good shepherd keeps and feeds and cares for his sheep. Here, right now, here, right now, as the gathered church, we embody a foretaste of that. We embody and manifest truths about the kingdom of Christ that will last forever. We see those here and now. No, I'm not the the shepherd that Jesus is. I'm the under-shepherd. In fact, I'm just like you as a sheep. That's why Peter would write to the local churches dispersed. He said, to the elders, to the pastors, the shepherds, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Be an example to them because you're one of them. So we are the sheep of God's pasture. We are the sheep of the good shepherd. You may know that shepherd. As we have said, through repentance and faith, he will welcome you into the flock. Today, maybe you realize that you're numbered among those who have compromised the worship of God by making room for sin and sharing your affections with other functional saviors. Other gods whom you know cannot save you. Maybe your perceived righteousness this morning, perceived being the key word, is not married to humility. Are you prideful of your own works? Be rebuked and corrected by the word of God today. Seek the Lord. Still others, if you're honest, you know you're a Philistine through and through, opposing God. But maybe today you would admit your dependence on him. And turn to Jesus in saving faith. Making that profession public through baptism. Some of you know your life is dry, directionless. It's really lifeless spiritually. You're thirsty for eternal things. You're hungry for meaning. You know, Jesus says that's a good thing. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So if you're willing to fall on Jesus in faith, knowing that he is the only source of your righteousness, knowing he's the only source of salvation today, Man, that's the best news you can hear. He died to make you free. He died to give you life and life abundant. You're looking for green pasture. You're looking for the nourishing 
waters. You're in need of eternal life in Jesus Christ. Know him today. We are going to respond singing. We're going to respond in giving. We're going to respond together with a responsive reading. But as we sing, I want you to know that I'm available to counsel with you, pray for you, encourage you however I can regarding your response to God's word. Let's respond this morning as the Holy Spirit leads. Pray with me.